This is the Proverbs 18.10 podcast, episode 56. And if you're saying that you know truth, if you're saying that you know what is truth, then you've got to have something to actually measure that against. Proverbs 18.10 podcast. 25 feet, a thousand layers. How many millions of years did that take to form them? The answer is it took three hours. Proverbs 18.10 podcast. This is the Proverbs 18.10 podcast presented by me, Paul Taylor, in association with Proverbs 18.10 Media. For all information about the podcast, including where to find the RSS feeds to put into your favorite podcasting software, please visit proverbs1810.org. Enjoy the show. Proverbs 1810 podcast uh, episode um, 56. My name is Paul Taylor and you're very welcome to join me. Thank you very much for being here and uh, it's lovely to see you and uh, I'm trying to bring you a lot of uh, comments and uh, apologetics and uh, a lot of different things from a biblical worldview and we've got a, a packed program today I'm going to try and talk briefly about the Supreme Court leak on Roe v Wade and I'm going to try and talk a little bit about uh, the food um, issues then we'll go into Genesis and uh, we'll have a look at uh, some more information regarding um, uh, what God was doing in the life of Abraham and uh, his family and then we will um, have a bit of a catch-up on Ukraine and uh, look at some of the uh, background issues there. So that's a packed programme that we've got today and uh, let's try and kick that off straight away as we talk about... um, uh, we'll, We'll have a quick look at the issues to do with the Supreme Court. Okay, so... One of the things then that happened um, in the last couple of days is uh, issues to do with the uh, Supreme Court and uh, a leak that there has been regarding um, a judgment they're making in a a case on the subject of uh, of abortion and um, uh, and to do with abortion laws in Mississippi and um, what... uh, What's what's been happening around around that issue? There was a leak of their preliminary uh, discussions with the the likely um, outcome. It looks like the likely outcome, according to the leak, would be for Roe v. Wade to be overturned as a part of the judgment, um, which would uh, not actually abolish um, abortion. It would mean that the issue was taken back to the states and uh, some states have passed some um, pro-life laws. Uh, none of them have so far outlawed abortion completely. There are, on the other hand, some states that have much uh, stronger pro-abortion laws, notably California and New York state. So actually the situation regarding unborn babies would get worse in those states. But that 
you know, those politicians will be held responsible for that before God. Um, so it is important that uh, the Constitution is adhered to on this particular issue. Uh, let's just have a look at um, some of the things that um, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, for example, was saying on the subject. Um, what he was uh, what he was saying on the subject uh, is that uh, judicial independence is very important. In this report in the Epoch Times, he made some remarks. He decried uh, what he described as an erosion of respect for the High Court and made an apparent reference to protests that erupted after the leak of a draft Supreme Court opinion, suggesting that the court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. And that's got major implications for access to abortion. As I said, if you stop and consider this carefully, you'll realise that the uh, reactions to um, abortion will depend on the state. And as I said, there'll be some uh, states where there will be an increase in the number of abortions. For example, New York State passed a law where abortion is uh, allowed on demand up to full term, no restrictions at all. And so that is the law that will come in in New York State if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Now, there have been many other people who've taken quite a long time to uh, explain the whole abortion issue. Um, I've in the past uh, talked on this issue. It is an issue to do with apologetics. Um, human beings are made in the image of God. That is uh, what we read in Genesis. And therefore, all, um, those human beings, uh, to destroy those human beings, is destroying the image of God. This is why murder is forbidden throughout the Bible. There is, of course, a distinction between murder and killing. Uh, killing in the time of warfare is allowed biblically and indeed judicial killing is allowed for example a murderer should himself be judicially killed so um, uh, that's what came in during the Noahic covenant of Genesis chapter 9 so the issue then is what how do you define the unborn baby and one of the things that the pro-abortion activists have been screaming about this week which they always scream about is saying it's a woman's right to choose what goes on in her body but the bible is very clear that the that the baby is not her body it's residing in her body but it's not her body the issue is that god has placed that baby there god uh, we read in psalm 139 has knit us together in our mother's wombs Therefore, the destruction of that baby before birth is as serious as the destruction of that baby after birth. The deliberate destruction of the baby before birth, the deliberate killing of the baby before birth, uh, is therefore um, an act of murder. And you can use all sorts of dehumanizing words. Um, Pro-abortion people like to refer to uh, the unborn baby as a fetus. And uh, without any context, that word sounds dehumanizing. Actually, if you looked at the uh, etymology of that word, you'll realize it's not actually dehumanizing because the word comes from uh, the words for little one. Imagine that. Go through uh, every document that refers to a fetus, trying to uh, make that sound uh, less than human, and replace that term fetus, quite justifiably, with the phrase little one. Abortion is therefore the destruction of a little one, a little human being. Uh, it's not a, uh, a it's not anti-woman to be opposed to that. After all, approximately 50% of those babies are, are baby girls. 
and uh, therefore they are being destroyed by this process. But, uh, you know, uh, even the most pro-abortion woman, um, while there would be some women who would, to some extent, rightly say that they shouldn't be convicted of murder if they have killed an abusive husband, that's true, but if they premeditatively kill a husband, uh, that's murder. Uh, uh, and you don't get uh, uh, women's rights by murder in the same way you don't get women's rights by murdering the baby. There's a lot more I could say about that. I've written about it extensively before now. I'm, I'm being a bit brief. You know, my comments may therefore not seem fully logical to you, but I've written about it before at length, and I would direct you to a number of other places uh, that have covered this issue uh, in greater detail. Uh, go and have a look at the website endabortionnow.com, for example. Uh, um, go and have uh, uh, have a listen to the broadcasts of my friends at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network uh, cross-politics show on this particular issue to do with this uh, Supreme Court. Uh, I was going to say Supreme Court ruling, but of course the ruling has not come yet. It's the ruling's due next month. But find out about the, uh, the, the, uh, the background to this. I would say that you notice that there is a huge frenzy among pro-abortion people. It's even been the case that the families of uh, uh, the uh, Supreme Court justices suspected of wanting to overturn Roe v. Wade have been picketed by activists. Uh, people are being uh, harassed, people are being bullied uh, in the hope that that will cause them to change their minds. That's disgraceful. It's absolutely disgraceful. And what it proves is that this is not just this is not an issue that is being discussed logically. Uh, we who defend the rights of the unborn children are the ones who discuss this logically, and we do it from first principles, and we do it from a biblical viewpoint. Those who are opposing us do not do so logically. They do it in a feeding frenzy because this is a religion to them. This is a religion. It's the religion of the secular world. And the blood sacrifice that they require is uh, abortion. So uh, it is a, a demonic issue. It is an issue of good and evil. And it's important that we understand it in that way. Well, as I said, there's plenty of other places that you can go and find out more about the background to that. I do want, uh, before I leave the news entirely, I want to briefly discuss a little bit to do with um, the uh, food plants issue. Now, there are some people who've been pointing out that a number of food plants seem to have um, been attacked lately. Um, let's just have a, a look at some of the news items to do with that, uh, because it's, uh, it, it's a pretty important story and it's quite a concerning story. Now, it's difficult to analyse things because there are not that many news um, items, that are, uh, not many news sources, by the way, that I um, trust these days. Um, here's uh, something from the uh, Epoch Times, and uh, this uh, is discussing those um, food plants. This is dated May the 3rd, it's not very long ago, but there's clear, there have clearly been some fires at some food processing plants and that's re re resulting in reduced capacity. It's resulting in delays and layoffs. One food processor forced to lay off an entire workforce of about 230 people, says the, um, uh, the subtitle there. 
and uh, there have been a number of uh, uh, of these things happening um, fires happening in food processing plants um, around the United States and this would appear to uh, be causing problems with food distribution now it's undeniable that there seems to be problems with food distribution at the moment and that's resulted in uh, high prices I mean you must have noticed that I've been noticing that over uh, the last few weeks food prices seem to be going up faster than the headline rates of inflation do and um, and particularly uh, uh, fresh food and uh, many of the staple foods that uh, that we ha uh, that we have are going up in price now i'm someone you know and um i make this comment um perhaps i haven't said much about my financial situation but my financial situation is pretty low i'm using uh, equipment that i've had for quite a long while before my current uh, financial situation kicked in um, but I have a very, very limited food budget and I have noticed therefore that my food budget um, in my weekly paycheck is uh, not going very far and I'm therefore be, uh, reducing the, the quality and the cost of the food that I have in order to, to get enough food and I know that there are many people who are in similar situations but there are food uh, shortages going around uh, people are struggling with uh, food shortages and food security itself is going down. Now, some of that might be blamed on the war um, in Eastern Europe. Some of it might be, and, uh, you know, we'll come back to that later. But we certainly know that Ukraine is a great producer of food, as actually is Russia. But, uh, you know, we're talking about... Um, local food too, food that's grown here in Idaho for example. Why is that causing uh, issues? And it would seem that there is something to do with these food plants being attacked. Now as soon as you start saying that it's notable that there are certain um, um, news agencies therefore and so-called fact-check agencies that are um, picking up on this and saying no it's nonsense that uh, these are being caused by uh, any deliberate um, uh, issues uh, for example factcheck.org talks about unfounded claims about the frequency and causes of food plant fires Snopes also um, has done the same thing uh, they, they uh, talk about uh, they asked the question there are fires this is a style that Snopes uses of course you're probably familiar with it are fires at food processing plants a new trend and uh, you can see some pictures there with the word misleading over it and uh, then you go down and you find that they have decided that that is false uh, the claim of a new trend of fires at food processing facilities does not hold up upon scrutiny, they say. Almost all of the fires are meme-less involved explainable causes and we found no examples of suspected arson. But there is a frequency there. And by the way, if factcheck.org and snopes.org are referring to this as um, not being a problem, I think therefore that in my mind that would suggest that there is a problem. I do not trust Snopes.org or FactCheck.org and I have not trusted them for quite a long time. So it would be my suspicion that the very fact that they are um, maintaining that there is no issue there 
is itself an issue and I think well, we should be cognizant of that we should take that into account as we think through our uh, attitude to this okay well um, that's uh, my initial news items um, mentioned and uh, coming up later, uh, we'll, we'll get on very soon to going through Genesis and then we'll have an update on our opinions on um, uh, Ukraine later. Um, but first, let me talk about um, the website allaboutbooks.store. Allaboutbooks.store. I'm just bringing that up on my uh, uh, browser. Allaboutbooks.store is my website. It is a website that uh, talks about uh, my, my uh, attempt to set up a business, uh, which would be all about books. Okay, so we've got that up in place now. And uh, I'm trying to uh, put together a business that where, where you'll be able to buy books, especially conservative and Christian books that your local bookstores are not uh, stocking. I've discovered that uh, even in a conservative area like uh, the two northern counties of, um, uh, of Idaho, the two northern counties of Idaho are very conservative in, uh, in style, Bonner County and Boundary County. And uh, there are three bookshops in the area I beg your pardon, there are four bookshops in the area, three in Sandpoint, one in Bonners Ferry, all of which seem to take a left-wing approach uh, to the sorts of books that you can find in there, and um, and also in the attitudes that, uh, that they have towards their customers. So I uh, would like to see a, um, a bookshop that uh, is able to provide Christian and conservative books because after all one of the great needs today is for us to educate ourselves uh, it's no good just taking the opinions of the news media you need education and yes you may well need to read some of those left-wing works I, I've read many of them uh, in order to see what I think of them and you also need to learn from other sources uh, particularly independent sources and, uh, and find out the logic of a conservative uh, position and how that is based on a biblical worldview so if you're interested in that then have a look please at allaboutbooks.store and while you're there you'll see that uh, I offer a service where I can put your book together and um, uh, lay it out and help you to publish it through uh, some of the um, print-on-demand publishers I think you'll find that uh, of great help uh, so you just have a look at that please and um, uh, have a look at the things that uh, uh, that I can offer there uh, because that will support me and support the work that I'm trying to do um, uh, in the podcast and the putting forward of, uh, of uh, biblical views. Okay, I am just going to pause the recording now before I get on to Genesis because I need something to wet my whistle. So uh, I'm just going to put a pause. You'll see her there for a break in the uh, in the recording. Uh, I'm going to get something uh, uh, to drink, a cup of coffee to drink, and then I'll be back and we'll get into the book of Genesis again. Well, I'm back on camera again now. You probably didn't notice any change, but uh, I have been offline for a bit and I had the wonderful privilege of being able to uh, spend a bit of time chatting to my uh, grandchildren in uh, the Republic of Ireland as well which was uh, which was lovely and so uh, uh, 
that's happened. There's been a sort of fair bit, fairly big break then in my recording for about an hour, but I'm I'm back now. As I said, you won't have noticed that. But we want to get into Genesis, and we were looking at Genesis 20 last time, and uh, I went through most of Genesis 20. There was just a little bit left at the end of uh, Genesis 20, but let's just uh, have uh, a look at that now. Um, here we go. So. We're looking at the bits where um, uh, Abimelech is sort of criticizing Abraham. Now remember, Abimelech is uh, pretty much a pagan. Uh, uh, he's not a, a man of faithfulness, and yet uh, clearly he does know something um, about God, because um, God came to him in a dream. But uh, we started uh, talking a little bit about uh, Abraham, uh, Abimelech's criticism of Abraham before. Uh, it says in verse 9, Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? Now, I think that's a genuine question. Abimelech is actually wondering whether there has been some sin there. The reason is because God has told him that Abraham is a prophet. And prophets in that part of the world and throughout you know, Old Testament times, prophets were frequently known as seers. Um, but Abimelech says to Abraham, you've done th to me things that ought not to be done. And that is correct. And uh, um, Abraham has done things that ought not to be done. Now, this is um, Abimelech's uh, accusation to Abraham. He says, what did you see that you did this thing? And there he's using the idea of Abraham being a seer. What did you see that you did this thing? Abimelech is, is actually wondering genuinely, is there a major sin that he needs to deal with? Uh, he has uh, pleaded his innocence before God, and God has said, yes, I kept you from sinning in this matter. Uh, it's not because of uh, Abimelech having a righteous background. He hasn't. He's a man who's quite happy to take a, a, someone else into his harem. Because, all right, it would not be right. Um, Abimelech presumably would not think of taking another man's wife into his harem but he shouldn't have a harem in the first place you know he's, he's lusted after someone else uh, um, Sarah who as we've discussed is still young enough to be attractive um, and as uh, so he's lusted after her and uh, he's taken her into his harem what did you see that you did this to me and here's Abraham's confession and it's not really much of a confession, okay? So Abraham does not really come out of this very well. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God in the, at all in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. And then it's a bit of an excuse. Uh, he says, uh, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, through, uh, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Okay, let's just, let's just comment on those two things a bit. So... Abraham um, is explaining that his lie is actually a half-truth. Uh, we should mention that Abraham has admitted he thought there was no fear of God in the place. Now, that's an admission because it's clear that there is some, uh, at least some fear of God in the place. And that admission could only be made if Abraham were now acknowledging that Abimelech and his people do, after all, fear God, at least to some extent. Um, Leopold, in his commentary, describes that as tantamount to an apology. It's as near as you're going to get, and it's not really a fulsome apology, but it's, it's close. 
Secondly, Abraham explains that his lie was a half-truth. We've discussed before how a close liaison like this, marrying your half-sister, is not problematic at that point in history. It has not been banned. It's banned, prohibited by God later under the Mosaic law for a reason. Just like uh, shellfish were prohibited for a reason, to protect the people... Uh, in an era when they needed that sort of health protection whereas we don't need it today um, in the same way uh, for health reasons there needed to be protection uh, against close intermarriage and that situation has got worse not better since most of this time so that's why that prohibition is in place close intermarriage was actually quite often necessary in fact uh, it didn't yet um, uh, cause the risk of uh, dangerously increased genetic load the third issue is that Abraham stated that the brother-sister lie had been concocted as early as their exodus from Haran. Now we know that. That's a, a truthful saying, but it doesn't excuse it. Abraham ought to have learned the error of this arrangement from his experience in Egypt. Now, fortunately for Abraham and Sarah, the hand of God was on this event. Despite the similarity of this sin to the sin of Genesis 12, the outcome is different. And that's why it is a different um, uh, event. There are some people who said, well, maybe this is the same event because of the similarity. But it isn't. It's a different event. Um, but the hand of God's on the event. Uh, what, what's the differences? In Egypt, Abraham ends up being expelled from Egypt. Abimelech, in contrast, invites Abraham to stay and to form an alliance. And that alliance is, um, is important to Abraham later. And it also becomes important to Isaac later uh, with probably a different Abimelech. Okay, we said uh, the word Abimelech is possibly a title. So the Abimelech that Isaac does business with is probably a different one. But nevertheless, maybe a descendant or certainly within the same... Um, it's the word I'm looking for, the same tribal connections. So Abimelech invites Abraham to stay and to form an alliance. Now in doing so, Abimelech is publicly proclaiming Sarah's innocence. And he gives Abraham gifts, and those gifts are there to symbolize um, Sarah's innocence. So it's quite important that there is that symbolism there. Um, Let's just uh, look at what it says. Uh, verse 14. Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, gave them to Abraham, returned Sarah, his wife, to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother. Notice that Abimelech is focusing on that relationship. I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Sarah's done nothing wrong here and it's quite important. Think of the dangers, by the way. Think of the dangers that could have happened. It's, um, it's not very long since God has told Abraham and Sarah that they are going to have the baby, the baby of promise, in a year's time. Now, presumably, that baby has not yet been conceived. Can you imagine if Abimelech had had sexual relations with Sarah, with the confusion, therefore, as to who is the father of Isaac? Can you imagine how that doubt would have, would have caused so many problems? Now, we never know what would have happened. Uh, we know that God's hand was in everything. He was ordering this. He was ordaining it. That's why it's happened this way. Um... But, you know, from a human point of view, you can think of the danger and the risk that uh, Abraham had. And even so, Abraham is still a prophet. He's still 
God's, he's still the friend of God. Because Abram is a human being and sinful and, guilt, and sinful and guilty of all sorts of things. Ab uh, uh, God doesn't choose friends among people on the basis of them being perfect. Because there would be no one then who could describe themselves as a friend of God. I believe I can describe myself as a friend of God simply because of faith. The faith that itself is a gift of God. Because that's what he's chosen to do. But I'm not righteous. Far, far from it. So... That's, uh, that's what we're looking at there. And of course, uh, God prayed to Abraham. Uh, sorry, God, uh, sorry, the other way around. Abraham prayed to God. I beg your pardon, that was a slip up. Abraham prayed to God. God healed Abimelech. Why did Abimelech need healing? We don't know exactly what God had given Abimelech, but we do know that um, his wife and his female slaves needed to be able to bear children. God had closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Now, how did those people know that God had closed the, all the wombs? How long had this happened? And it causes some problems for people. You know, verses 17 and 18 can cause some confusion. How long would it take for the people to know they'd all been made barren? You know, does it mean that this whole event took a couple of years? Well, no, it couldn't have, because by that time, Isaac would have been born. God had promised Isaac um, a, a year from his visitation to Abraham and Sarah. I suggest that uh, this, these events happened over no more than 24 hours, in which case... Um, I've noticed, by the way, that Morris doesn't count comment on this in his commentary on the timescale. Neither does Leopold. So I'm just going to have to make my own assertion here with very little evidence other than my own application of logic. It seems to me that the events took place over no more than a day or two, and therefore the people's barrenness must have been supernaturally revealed. And Abimelech's believed that there's this barrenness. It's there because God has told them, as long as this event goes on, you're barren. It's part of what they've been told. And therefore, the whole tribe realised that there's going to be no further children unless Sarah's returned to her husband. They didn't need to wait to find that fact out by natural means. They had found it out by supernatural means. So the whole chapter gives us a painful reminder that the, the best of men are men at best. We've witnessed Abraham at his worst in repeating the shame of a former sin, that God can and does restore them even after repeat offenders is a matter of great hope to us. Because the chapter reminds us we ought to learn from our past mistakes. And we probably ought to learn from the mistakes of our parents too. And so Abraham ought to have learned from his time in Egypt. Isaac ought to have learned from Abraham's time in Egypt and Abraham's um, um, issues with Abimelech. And those things did not happen. And we'll come to Isaac's uh, issue uh, later. Um, Isaac's issue, by the way, is what I'm currently trying to write about in the third volume of my uh, commentary on the book of Genesis. Um, it's difficult for me to find time to put the commentary together, by the way. Um, so as I'm just winding up this uh, this uh, particular section about um, uh, chapter 20... Um, Please remember that if you want to support me, um, then I would find it very helpful if you would go to one of the places where you can financially support me. And uh, they would be places like um, uh, Subscribestar, Locals or Substack. 
the addresses for those I'm going to try and remember to put on the screen as I edit this video. It's subscribestar.com forward slash Paul F. Taylor or paulftaylor.locals.com or paulftaylor.substack.com and uh, any money you're giving there is going to ultimately buy me time to produce more uh, podcast to find time to do the podcast and to find time to write things too so that I can get well into uh, producing the third volume of, uh, of my commentary on Genesis. Okay so that's one winding up uh, the stuff we're doing on um, Genesis today and next time we come back to Genesis possibly um, not next issue not next episode but the episode after that uh, I want to have a look at, hopefully, God willing, next episode, I want to have another look at something to do with Matthew 24. But um, then we'll be getting on to uh, Genesis chapter 21 about the child of promise. And that's a huge amount of stuff. There's a lot to say about Genesis 21. And uh, so let's leave that for um, a, a future occasion. Well, I said we would uh, try and look at some stuff to do with Ukraine, and I always hesitate about this because I know there are some people who get cross with me for what I'm sharing about Ukraine. I suppose I ought not to have to say this, um, but I think we probably ought to start by just acknowledging the fact that the victims of everything that's going on in Ukraine are the Ukrainian people. I have sympathy for Russian people, by the way, as well, but the Russian people largely are not suffering. Russian soldiers are, Ukrainian soldiers are, um, but the actual people on the ground, who you might refer to as, uh, as innocent, except in the sense that none of us are innocent, but broadly innocent of issues to do with the war, are ordinary Ukrainian people. Okay. So I have to emphasize that because a lot of people think that I'm just anti-Ukrainian and I'm not. The people who are suffering are the Ukrainian people. What I'm, uh, uh, all I've been arguing is that uh, it's not simply the Russian soldiers and the Russian government who are causing this. Some of it is caused by Ukrainian soldiers and the Ukrainian government. In fact, a large portion of it. And let's try and explain some of the background to this. First of all, here's the... Um, map at the moment of the current state of the war uh well i'm recording this on may the 8th 2022 this map was on the bbc on may the 5th 2022 so of course there could easily be some changes but you'll notice that you've got the donbass region on the uh, east side there, including the Luhansk Republic and the Donetsk Republic. And by the way, these are not arbitrary areas. A lot of people forget that there used to be, under the old Soviet Union, three levels of republic. Not two. Three levels of republic. There was the um, USSR as a whole, their government, uh, over the entire USSR. Then there were the um, Soviet republics themselves, of which Russia was the one and the biggest one, but Ukraine was another. And it was Kazakhstan and uh, or various other uh, places, Belarus, um, the, Bal the Baltic um, republics and so on. So there were other... Um, Soviet republics and they all became independent at the dissolution of the Soviet Union but they were not necessarily the same countries as existed before the formation of the Soviet Union their borders were changed by Stalin for administrative region reasons 
So um, the ethnic Ukraine area would have been the largest portion of modern day Ukraine, but in fact areas to the east there would not originally have been under the country known as Ukraine. Um, uh, that will be uh, important when we when we mention things to do with the area known as Crimea. But uh, the third level of republic then is that there were other republics. Okay, uh, we often think about some of the republics within Russia, such as uh, Chechnya and so on. But there were republics in the other countries too. So um, the Donbas republics, Luhansk and Donetsk, did they, did exist before? Uh, and it's important to understand that uh, and to try and understand the structure of things. So the Russians there are in control of uh, the east and the south of the country. And they've, um, uh, you know, so you look at places like, uh, been in the news like Mariupol. Mariupol is very much an ethnically Russian area. It's well within that area. Um, there has also been uh, fighting on the southern city of Odessa, uh, more of a Ukrainian area. Um, but I do need to emphasize that it's the Ukrainian people, whether they are ethnically Ukrainian or ethnically Russian, Ukrainian speakers or Russian speakers, they're the ordinary people on the ground are the people who have been suffering, both the people in the large mass of Ukraine, but also the people in the east in the Donbass region have suffered previously under um, shelling by Ukrainian forces uh, since the, uh, the coup that happened in 2014. It's important to remember all those factors there as well. Well, what I want us to uh, look at now then is just to uh, give you a bit of background as to what NATO's part in this has been. Uh, you see, we in the West, and in particular the British and the Americans, have a major role in the crisis that's happened. Many of the things that we have done have caused problems. And we've recently had um, Boris Johnson's video press presentation to uh, the Ukrainian parliament, in which case he's stir in which he is stirring up the Ukrainians, saying, you will win, Ukraine will win. And, uh, and giving uh, weapons and so on to the Ukrainians, and that is prolonging the war and therefore prolonging the suffering of the people. One of the things that would work where um, the Russians have said that they would stop their attacks, and I think I have to believe this because their soldiers are coming under attack too, and, and, and it's not going as well as they hoped for in their attack on Ukraine. One of the things that they have said is that they want Ukraine to declare that they would be neutral. They would never become part of either the Russian bloc or the NATO bloc. And that's very important, as you'll see in a series of maps that I'm going to show you about um, the uh, uh, NATO and, uh, and how that has developed over a period of time. That's very important indeed. So let's, uh, and you might think, well, surely Ukraine shouldn't be asked to do that, should they? Well, just hold on with that thought, because I'm going to show you a, a few things to do with that. Okay, this first map here shows you um, the situation during the Cold War. Okay, my colour coding is perhaps not as accurate as it could be, and there may be some inaccuracies somewhere, certain islands, for example, that I've not managed to colour, tiny Greek islands that I've not managed to colour, uh, but I, I've tried to give um, NATO countries um, a sort of purple, lavender-type colour. By the way, 
even the um, Lavender countries were not part of NATO right at its very inception. Spain was not part of NATO at its inception, nor was West Germany. Okay, let's just have a look at this so that you can follow what I'm talking about here. Uh, I believe you can see the cursor. Here's Germany. After the Second World War, Germany was occupied by four uh, Allied powers. That was the Soviet Union, uh, which obviously included modern-day Russia as the most powerful area. So there was the Soviet Union, there was the United States, there was uh, the United Kingdom, and there was France. And they all had a section of Germany. Uh, that clearly couldn't, uh, wasn't tenable to last forever. So what happened is that the Western powers, the United States, um, uh, France and the United Kingdom put their sections together and that formed the country of West Germany and that became that was eventually admitted to NATO Spain joined NATO uh, a little earlier than uh, well, around about that time uh, actually it was a bit later than that but anyway Spain at the towards the end of the Cold War Spain was certainly a member of NATO and you've got Iceland there you've got Norway uh, Ireland is a neutral country. Sweden and Finland declared uh, uh, that they were neutral. Interesting point is that the communist country known as Yugoslavia, which is now split into many Balkan countries here, did not become part of the um, Warsaw Pact. The Warsaw Pact was a sort of set up in opposition to NATO, if you like. Um, well, those communist countries did not become part. Albania down here did originally, but then left. Switzerland has always been neutral uh, politically for uh, centuries. And now here was the issue I uh, said about, um, uh, you know, the relevance of Ukraine being declared non-aligned, okay? And it's to do with the country uh, of Austria. Now, after the Second World War, Austria was treated by the Allies as a belligerent force was not treated as a country conquered by Germany, it was treated as um, a belligerent force. And I think that was right because they decided to unite with Germany pretty much voluntarily as far as the political establishment were concerned. Therefore, Austria was divided into four, just like Germany was. There was a French, a British, an American and a Soviet area. Unlike in Germany, however, they, uh, they did come to an agreement in Austria to have a joint government, which was uh, comprised of people from all four regions, and that lasted for a few years. It was, um, uh, it was problematic, but it lasted for a few years. But again, they really all the Allies wanted to take troops out of Austria. And in the discussions on that subject, the only way it could be agreed to happen was for Austria to be declared neutral. And so there was a declaration of neutrality. Now this declaration of neutrality was actually placed into the Austrian constitution. So to alter that would require a, um, a change to the Austrian constitution, which would be quite difficult. Now here's the Wikipedia article on this. This was the only way that they could um, persuade the Soviets to, re to leave um, Austria. 
in the uh, the law here that was passed it says in all future times Austria will not join any military alliances and will not permit the establishment of any foreign military bases on her territory and it should be noted that the uh, Soviet Union would not have agreed to the state treaty if Austria had not committed herself to neutrality after the Allied forces had left the country. So that is how, in 1955, an independent Austria emerged with a constitution that, uh, that um, actually um, includes in that constitution the fact that Austria cannot join a military alliance. They've joined the European Union, but they're not allowed to join a military alliance. And we need to note that that's uh, how that works. So... Austria has always been independent from that point of view. So you've got all this independent stuff. Then we've got the Warsaw Pact. The Warsaw Pact includes the Soviet Union, which at the time would have been Russia, and Ukraine, and Moldova, and Belarus, and um, the Baltic states of uh, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Tiny little area here around Kaliningrad. Um formerly referred to as Königsberg, uh, that is actually part that is actually part of Russia. It's a detached part of Russia, but it is actually part of Russia. So after the Cold War, this was uh, how things were promised. Germany uh, was reunited uh, with the collapse of the Berlin Wall, and then the whole of Germany was taken into NATO. <clears throat> now the Russians were not too happy with this at the time um, but they were persuaded that this was uh, uh, okay that it would uh, be able to happen uh, there was a promise given by NATO and it's in writing it's in uh, declarations known as the Minsk declarations a promise given that there would be no expansion of NATO east of Germany once the whole of Germany had been brought into NATO there would be no expansion so this is how things were intended to be there would be a buffer between the western powers and the eastern powers of all these non-aligned countries with all the former Warsaw Pact countries becoming uh, taking on the same sort of model as the former Yugoslavian states did now, uh, I've coloured here, um, the, the Baltic countries um, coloured as grey because they had already been granted independence from the Soviet Union. They were granted independence from the Soviet Union before the dissolution of the Soviet Union, before the attempted coup against Gorbachev and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. We've got uh, Russia there in red, and there's the detached bits of Russia in red. I've put Belarus and Moldova now in pink. Strictly speaking, Ukraine ought to be in pink too, but I've coloured it blues because we're focusing on that for the purpose. If I was doing this merely politically, Ukraine should also be a country under the Commonwealth of Independent States that was set up after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, but we're concentrating on Ukraine, that's why I've given it a separate colour of its own at this point. Okay, so that was the promise that was made, but the promise was not kept by NATO. Look at what's happened. Since then, we now have um, a number of other states that have joined um, uh, NATO. In fact, um, some of the former Yugoslavian states, notably Slovenia, Croatia and um, Montenegro and Macedonia have joined NATO. Albania has also joined NATO and you've got Bulgaria and Romania, 
Hungary, Slovakia and the Czech Republic all joined NATO, as well as the former Baltic states of Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia. So you've got a much larger um, NATO bloc now, and you can see that if you were a Russian, a Russian politician, uh, you might say, well, NATO is purely a defensive network, but you see... NATO's actions in Afghanistan, and for that matter in Serbia, have suggested that uh, NATO is not that neutral. It is basically going to be a bloc that is more or less run by the major Western powers, for, by which we'd refer to basically the United States and the United Kingdom as the two major powers. Uh, it's only the United States, the United Kingdom and Poland, by the way, our, sorry, I think Lithuania as well, who actually give sufficient money to uh, NATO uh, under their treaty obligations. Everyone else gives less than their treaty obligations. So those are the countries that are ruling, but Poland and Lithuania being less uh, powerful these days. Historically, they were powerful. There used to be this uh, area known as the Polish-Lithuanian uh, Commonwealth all over here. But today, you could say that um, the NATO is really run by the United States and to some extent with the United Kingdom as well. So you've got this huge NATO bloc, and you can see it's coming closer and closer to areas of Russian interest. Now, you may say, well, that, you know, they shouldn't be worried about that but you have to see things from their point of view as well and see that they feel threatened by this by the way uh, in effect we should uh, point out the current situation is really this let's color the Crimea there as uh, red because whether you like the situation or not the Crimea has been overrun by Russian troops since 2014 and that you have to say that there is some justification in this, particularly with the events of 2014, when there was a coup against the democratically elected government of Ukraine and a regime installed which did not have popular support. Um, and uh, the successor of that regime is what's in power in Ukraine today. So we need to note that fact. Um, it's, it's very important to note that fact, but Crimea, the Crimea and Sevastopol in the Crimea is Russia's uh, one of only two warm water deep ports, ports that are not blocked up by ice during the winter, the other one being Vladivostok. So you can see that um, Sevastopol and Crimea is very important to Russia. And again, it was not historically part of Ukraine, when the when the Crimean War happened, when Britain and France uh, invaded the Crimea in order to try and prevent Russia from attacking the then Ottoman Empire, um, the, uh, they, they didn't say that they were attacking Ukraine, it was Russia that they were attacking. And it's important to understand that distinction, that it, Crimea has always been considered a part of Russia. You may not like that with uh, the way that the Soviet Union lumped Crimea into the republic known as Ukraine, but that is the historical perspective on things. So that's the current situation, and you can see that uh, from a Russian perspective, they therefore view this as um, a problem, especially since um, there has been talk of... In of um, 
enlarging NATO still further. Sweden and Finland um, attempting to join, and of course there was the uh, arguments that Ukraine should join NATO as well, in which case you are very close, you can have uh, troops very close to uh, Russia's capital, Moscow, uh, in a sense, some of the missile air th missiles uh, on the eastern border of Poland are certainly close enough to uh, attack um, uh, Moscow. But if the Ukraine was part of um, NATO as well, then you can see that Russia feels threatened. Now, the symbol of Russia is the bear. You know what happens if you poke a bear. They're eventually going to sort of strike back. Now, Russia are entirely in the wrong to cause suffering to Ukrainian people by a military invasion. And I don't want you to run away with thinking that anything I'm saying has justified that. I shouldn't really have to keep repeating that point. But it's nevertheless the case that despite it not being an excuse for the war, you can see that there is a reason for the war. And the reason for the war is the threat that Russia perceives from an expanded NATO, especially given that NATO had at one time promised that their borders would be all the way back here with only Eastern Germany being taken into NATO. Um, clearly, if you're talking about broken promises and problems, um, it is not only um, Russia that have caused those problems. Many of those problems have been caused by NATO too. And when we're making any discussion on the subject, we really need to take that into account. Now, there's many more things that I could say. I could comment on the fact that um, Ukrainian flags have been banned from Victory Day celebrations in Germany, and which is basically coincides with VE Day um, in Western Europe. And you can understand why the Germans tried to mark Victory Day as a sort of victory over Nazism. And you've got to remember that some of the forces in Ukraine who are helping the government, helping in inverted commas, are actually Nazis. You've got people like the Azov Battalion and uh, they hold to views which are uh, very, very similar to um, the Third Reich views. And you know there's this uh, law that says as soon as you start bringing up the Nazis, you've lost the argument. I am not accusing the Ukrainian people of being Nazis, far from it. And I'll just emphasize again one last time before I conclude this bit. The Ukrainian people are the people who are suffering in this. They are the victims. But we've got to understand what the background is to this, and therefore I can to some extent, although it's a suppression of free speech, and I'm not in favour of suppressing free speech, but I can, given the way that uh, the German constitution works, understand to some extent uh, why they've been banning those flags. They probably shouldn't do, they should probably give people the chance to uh, exercise whatever free speech they want and for the court of public opinion to uh, to say to them that you're wrong with those views. But um, that really gives you a bit of a background to show you what part NATO has had to play in this whole crisis. Uh, the crisis which is being visited on the Ukrainian people is not helped by giving weapons to the government of Ukraine, which is basically an illegitimate government put in there as a puppet regime for the purposes of NATO. And uh, it's, we're not helping the Ukrainian people, whether they be um, 
ethnically Ukrainian speaking people or ethnically Russian speaking people. They're not being helped. We need to have a more realistic view of the situation and try and bring an end to this war. And I would suggest that probably an end to that war would involve doing the same for Ukraine as was done for Austria and make them in perpetuity a non-aligned nation, not allowed to join NATO and not allowed to join uh, the uh, Russian military alliance either. That would be uh, uh, to make sense to me as uh, an outside observer. You will have different opinions, but uh, that's uh, my opinion on the subject. Well, I tried to give a balanced view. I tried to explain my things from um, a biblical worldview point of view. Um, you're welcome to disagree with me, but uh, thank you for uh, taking part in this program. Uh, remember that I do need your support if I'm going to continue to produce podcasts and also to produce my books. Um, so please consider supporting me at Subscribestar or at Locals or at Substack. You can find the addresses for those uh, and the show notes for this show. Meanwhile, until next time, thank you for being here. Goodbye and God bless.